Hey everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, your public safety guru. Today we will be talking about airway, ventilation, and oxygenation. If you're in my EMT program, the following material will be for exam two, so I hope that it does help you in passing the test. So today we're going to talk about airway. We're going to do a little bit of anatomy and physiology review because it's very pertinent to this lecture. Then we're going to be talking about assessment and management of our patients and techniques and tools in relation to airway and airway management. So let me start off by giving you a scenario. You and your partner respond to a private residence for a 60-year-old female complaining of shortness of breath. She is lying in bed. The patient, the patient is semi-conscious with snoring respirations. Breathing is fast and shallow. So the first question I want to ask you is, is, does breathing appear adequate? Yes or no? If you answer no, you are right. And the reason is, breathing is fast and shallow. Now, it's really hard for me to explain what shallow looks like, but I want you to think about this, especially for testing purposes. If you see shallow respirations, I want you to think that there is not adequate tidal volume. In other words, the chest rise and fall is very inadequate for life. You should be thinking positive pressure ventilation or BVM. The other part to that is when I say positive pressure ventilation for the EMT, especially in California, it's BVM. PPV and BVM are the same thing in California. Now, in other states, you will use positive pressure devices that are hooked up to oxygen, but that's in other states. But regardless, positive pressure ventilation is a BVM in the state of California. So this is what we should be thinking about when we have that patient with shallow respirations, especially when they're fast. Now, this question actually has two problems. The next one I'm going to ask you, which should have been the first question because we always deal with a, does the airway appear adequate? And our answer once again should be no. The patient presents with snoring respirations. Snoring respirations is obstructed respirations. So we should have fixed this first. So when we look at this for testing purposes as well as what we do in the field, when we find a patient with snoring respirations and also has fast and shallow respirations, we will, we will always fix A first. So we're going to open up the airway, head tilt, chin lift, and if you suspect trauma, a jaw thrust. Then because it's snoring, if the, we didn't fix it by opening up the airway, then we're going to suction because usually that's some type of saliva or fluid at the back of the throat that is causing that respiration. So we may do that. And then once we correct that, then we're going to jump in with a BVM to take care of those shallow respirations. Let's talk gag reflex. By now, you should know where the gag reflex is located. So if you saw a test question, where is the gag reflex located? A, soft palate, B, esophagus, C, pharynx, D, trachea, what would be your correct answer? I'll give you some, I'll give you some time to think about that. If you answered C, pharynx, Yes, that is the correct location. This is what protects the airway. If the patient presents with a gag, re a gag reflex, we will not be using any type of oropharyngeal device to maintain the airway as it will touch the back of that gag reflex and cause the patient to possibly vomit. 
what does the gag reflex do? I'm going to pose this question for you. So is it A, causes the epiglottis to close over the trachea, B, stimulates the central chemoreceptors, C, causes the uva to relax, or D, stimulates the vomiting center in the cerebellum? This is a little bit more trickier and dependent on the program that you're in will depend on what your instructor obviously told you. I tell my students it's A, causes the epiglottis to close over the trachea. Now remember, try this right now. Try to swallow and breathe at the same time. You can't. Your body needs to make a choice. So when you swallow, this flap of skin will co cover the trachea, preventing saliva and food products from going into your trachea and then into your bronchus and into your lungs. And then when we breathe, it prevents air from entering the stomach. So it goes back and forth dependent on what you're going to do. This is the wonderful system of our body and the safety mechanisms that are built inside of it. Once again, if we are going over this, you should have taken the time to memorize the large structures of our airway. You should be able to identify where the nasal cavity is, where the nasal pharynx is at, the oral pharynx, and then the laryngeal pharynx, and then the larynx. And the way I just said them is kind of the way that we would start from the top and work our way down. Once again, remember the larynx is the only structure, I'm sorry, I do apologize. The trachea is the only structure that's part of the upper airway and the lower airway. All right, let's do a little review. Anatomy and physiology. The respiratory system is designed to move oxygen inside the body and move carbon dioxide outside of the body. The respiratory system must be functioning for breathing to work. But this all relies on a patent airway. We must have an airway. Hence the reason why we have A, B, C's. We fix A, then we move to B. When we fix B, we move to C. And if C is fixed, we get to play. The human respiratory system consists of the following body parts. The nasal passage, the oral cavity, the pharynx, the larynx, trachea, bronchi, lung, heart, and ribs. Now, in the class you're in with me, we're not going to break this down and put a diagram on the table and tell you, identify all these parts. But you should know them, especially if you want to move on with medicine. This is the difference between a good EMT and a great EMT, especially if you want to move on to being a paramedic, nurse, or doctor. Now, this next part is kind of a little off topic, but it's part of your lecture. I'm going to talk about a flail segment. A flail segment is when you have broken ribs in two or more sections on the chest wall. This causes a condition known as paradoxical movement, and this means that the flail segment, that broken segment, will move in the opposite direction that the other part of the chest is moving, and they go back and forth. This rubbing is very painful. The key thing to remember here, though, is if you have a test question which talks about the patient is suffering from paradoxical movement, this is indicative of a flail chest and that should be your answer. You will receive more about this when we especially get to the trauma block. In regards to the lungs themselves, and I do apologize that we're jumping around, but this is the A&P stuff that you've already had and that we need to kind of throw in there again as a reminder, especially as you prepare for the next block exam. Now with your lungs, remember, there's two layers of pleura in your lungs. 
viscero, which is the inside layer, and pleuro, which is the outside layer. Though there are different medical emergencies involving the lungs, I want to hit on three. Pneumothorax. Pneumothorax is a hole in the lungs. And with that, air will escape into the chest cavity. And at this point in time, as more air enters the chest cavity, the lung will begin to collapse in itself, on itself, eventually collapsing to the point that it could collapse on top of the heart and inhibit the heart from pumping um, efficiently. The next we have is a hemothorax where some type of outer chest trauma has occurred and now the chest cavity is filling up with blood. The lung is okay, but the chest cavity is filling up with blood and now compressing on that uh, lung. And then the next is we have a hemoneumothorax, which is the combination of a punctured lung as well as blood filling up in, into that cavity. So pneumothorax, hemothorax, and hemoneumothorax. You should know the differences between all three. In your trauma block, we will talk about the treatment for that, which is usually an occlusive dressing taped on all three sides, allowing that fourth side for the air to escape. But once again, that'll be in your trauma block. Now, remember that lecture we had about diffusion and osmosis? Well, gas exchange in the lungs is conducted by diffusion. This is why we wanted you to know the difference between diffusion and osmosis, as well as just learn what diffusion and osmosis was. Now, when we inhale air, air consists of 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and 1% other. When we exhale, we exhale all that nitrogen, 78%, but we also exhale 16% of oxygen. And then the other is 4.5, 4 to 5% of CO2 and 1% other. This is why back in the old days when we used to give mouth to mouth, this is why mouth to mouth would work. Because if I took in 20% and only used about 6 to 7%, that means I'm exhaling 13 to 14%, giving that patient 14%, and then they only utilize 6 to 7% and exhale another 6 to 7% out. That's why mouth to mouth works. Now, here's a 3x5 card tidal volume. Tidal volume is capital V with a small t below that equals 500 milliliters. That means the average adult is taking in 500 milliliters of air. With that, I'm gonna ask you this question. How do we judge tidal volume? A, look at chest rise and fall. B, measure with a pulse oximeter. C, use a balloon system to calculate. And D, ask the patient their normal inspiratory volume. Now think about EMT. What is it you can do as an EMT? If you chose A, you're correct. Remember, we're looking for tidal volume. We're not looking for the oxygen level inside the bloodstream, so that's why B would not be a choice, pulse oximeter. As well as, as an EMT, have we talked about any type of balloon system? No. And why would we rely on any type of patient, let alone a patient, to tell us what their normal inspiratory volume is? They have no idea what you're even talking about. So we measure tidal volume by looking for good chest rise and fall. We have this formula called minute volume, three by five card. Minute volume is respiratory rate times tidal volume. Remember that, respiratory rate RR times tidal volume, TV. You need to memorize this. What is minute volume? 
Minute volume is measured by tidal volume and respiratory rate. So you ever see what, or if you're ever asked what is the uh, formula for minute volume, it is MV equals TV times RR. And why do we even use this stuff? Well, the question is, do I ventilate or give oxygen via mask? Now, are you going to figure this stuff out in the field? No, you're not. We're not going to be using formulas in the field. Okay, Even as paramedics, we just generally don't use formulas in the field. This is just extra information, or as I like to describe it, superfluous information that some bookworms want EMTs and paramedics to know. I'm not a big fan of memorizing stuff just for the sake of memorization, so that's why I try to break it down for you to get you to understand what is behind all of this. So that's why we have minute volume. It's because you got to ascertain or pretty much figure out, are you going to use a BVM, positive pressure ventilation, or are you just going to slap an oxygen mask on the patient? I always tell my patient, or my correction, my students this, if respirations are below 12, that is abnormal. We got to start thinking about getting that respiratory rate up. How do we do that? We breathe for our patient. If Tidal volume is low and shallow, boop, 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 big word, shallow. Remember I tell people if this was a Scooby-Doo cartoon, this is when Scooby looks at Shaggy and says, hey, Shaggy, that's a clue. Well, that's it. Actually, I do a better Scooby-Doo commercial. Shaggy, that's a clue. Uh, never mind. Forget it. Anyways, that's a clue. Shallow respirations equals BVM. And with that, the normal heart rate for an adult is 12 to 20 times per minute. Now, muscles of the breathing. The primary muscle of breathing is the diaphragm along with the intercostals. Now, the thing with the intercostals, the intercostals are that space in between each rib. Normally, this looks effortless. We don't see those moving as the chest wall moves in as one unit. But when breathing becomes labored, then we see the human body utilizing all the necessary accessory muscles to help it breathe. This is the wonderful system of our body. Our body has so many backup systems that the backup systems will be activated to help us out. It's kind of like we are carbon dioxide breathers. We have chemoreceptors inside of our brain that sense the rising levels of carbon dioxide. With those rising levels of carbon dioxide, we breathe. However, there are conditions such as COPD and emphysema that possibly knock these carbon dioxide chemoreceptors out. So then our oxygen chemoreceptors kick in and we become oxygen breathers and these are the people known as COPDers. So just with that, when we have shortness of breath, normally we won't see those intercostals but all of a sudden those intercostal muscles kick in and they're working. And then we're gonna see our patient go into a tripod position because their body is trying to just get upright to get as much air inside of the lungs as possible. We'll see the neck muscles get used, those stinocleidomastoid muscles. We'll see the trapezias get used, and then the pectoral muscles, abdominal muscles, and of course the intercostals. All these accessory muscles play a key role when someone is having mild to, I'm sorry, to moderate to severe respiratory distress. Now, one of the breathing patterns I want you to become familiar with is chain stokes breathing. It's described as fast, hard breathing with periods of apnea. So if you ever see a question where they talk about fast respirations with periods of apnea, it's the periods of apnea that's your clue that this is chain stokes breathing, okay? 
Now, it's far different from Kuzmal respirations because Kuzmal respirations are those deep, hard respirations associated with someone trying to blow off the ketones because they're in ketoacidosis. And this is usually indicative of a diabetic emergency. So these are the two that you need to be very familiar with because one has to do with one emergency and the other has to do with another emergency. Now, we have different types of lung sounds. We have wheezing. Strider, snoring, rails, ronchi, and they could be diminished or absent. So let's talk about rails for a minute. Rails, uh, for all intents and purposes, is bad. This means there is fluid in the lungs. This is when we put our patient in the upright position. Now, the patient's sitting in fowlers, high fowlers, but what I want you to think about is this. The patient is drowning right in front of you. I have been asked, what are the calls, the scariest calls that I've been on? This is one of them because for all intensive purposes, your patient is underneath water and not able to breathe. And if you see pink frothy sputum, in other words, saliva coming out that's kind of bubbly that looks pinkish, that's, the pinkish is blood. Their lungs have filled up. They're unable to breathe. So they are drowning right in front of you. We have to do everything we can to save this patient's life. So this is when you are going to put the legs dependent. So what that means is you're going to put the legs over, on the, uh, over the side of the gurney and the patient's feet are going to be with your feet. This is that feet dependent because we're trying to suck all of the fluid out of the lungs and make it go dependently down to the ankles. We're going to use every trick we possibly can to keep this patient alive. Another bad lung sound is diminished or absent because now we have to ask ourselves, why is the lung or why cannot we hear, why can we not hear the lung? Is there a pneumothorax? Is there a hemopneumothorax? Whatever it may be, we got to start asking ourselves what is going on and how we are going to fix it. The signs and symptoms of respiratory distress are the following. Tachypnea, fast breathing. Tachycardia, fast heart rate. Accessory muscle use. Breathing appears labored. Pale, cool, moist, to cyanotic skin. Let me say that one more time. Pale, cool, moist, to cyanotic skin. Now, one thing you need to remember is this. At any one given time, we have four to six minutes of oxygen inside of our blood flowing around. So if I were to right now drop dead, please call 911, but if I drop dead, I have about four to six minutes worth of oxygen inside of my body. This is why we tell lay people just to do compressions, fast, hard compressions if you find someone in need of CPR and no longer any type of mouth-to-mouth because they could circulate that four to six minutes and keep my brain, heart, and lungs alive. With that, As time goes by and the CO2 levels begin to rise in my bloodstream, then I will begin to turn cyanotic. But remember this for testing purposes. We always start pale and we work our way blue. Now, with the other uh, things that people do during difficulty breathing or respiratory distress, they'll put themselves in the upright to tripod position. They may have speech issues. And what I mean by that is they may have sentence dyspnea. We usually refer that to, if they're only able to take, uh, say, one to two words, we'll say they have one to two word sentence dyspnea. This means they have to take a breath for every one to two words that they say. 
Sometimes it's three to four. But what we're telling the doctors and nurse when we give our report is that they're not able to complete a full sentence without taking a breath. And then we have abnormal sounds and abnormal patterns. And what I mean by abnormal patterns, Kuzmal, Chainstokes, and the rest and the, and the rest of them. In case you wanted to look up those patterns, obviously we have normal, Chainstokes breathing, Kuzmal, central neurogenic hyperventilation, ataxia, and agonal. So we're going to be jumping into airway right now, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you, go ahead and take a break. We're going to come back because we're going to be talking about airway assessment and management. Okay, welcome back everybody. Respiratory assessment determination. Is our patient, does our patient have adequate breathing or inadequate breathing? This is what we're trying to determine. So let's talk about some of the things that you may see on your calls. Does a patient present with fast or slow, a fast or slow respiratory rate? Is there unequal or inadequate chest rise? Are the, is the patient showing retractions above the clavicles, between the ribs, below the rib cage? Is the skin cool and clammy? Is there occasional gasping breaths that usually are seen right before death? Is the rhythm irregular? Is there an increased effort to breathe? Is there shallow or inadequate depth of breathing? Cyanosis, nasal flaring, use of accessory muscles. Believe it or not, these are all things that you are going to learn to look for within seconds. It sounds like a lot right now, but with time, you are going to be able to pick all of these up within seconds of assessing your patient, your patient, especially as you're just walking into the room. You'll be able to determine if your patient's in mild, moderate to severe distress just based upon that general impression we're telling you to look for. Now, talking about when we first walk into the room, here's another rule I want you to think about. If you walk in and you find someone on the ground and you do not have any witnesses that tell you how they got there or you yourself do not know how they got there, we want to think about using the jaw thrust to open up their airway. We have to think spinal precautions. So though you may not see any type of initial trauma, I want you to think spinal precautions and I want you to think jaw thrust, especially if you're in my program taking the test. Anybody who's down on the ground and we do not know how they get there, if the test question asks you about what you should do, you want to open up the airway with the jaw thrust. So remember, we always look for the answer that has BSI. If BSI, if BSI is not an option, then we move to general impression. If general impression is not an option, then we look for the answer with airway. And then, then if we move past airway where that's not an option, then we go to B for breathing and C for circulation. But let's go right back to this. A, airway, unknown, down, means spinal precautions, jaw thrust. Now, before I forget, because I thought about it earlier, we've already talked about a few conditions where the patient's skin is, is going to be cool, pale, cool, and clammy. Pale, cool, moist, maybe pale, cool, diaphoretic. Pale, cool, moist skin is shock, hypoperfusion, inadequate perfusion. I don't care what words you want to use or combination of words. It is shock, okay? Shock is shock. And I hate the fact that Different people and different schools and different books all call it different stuff. 
but shock is hypoperfusion, inadequate perfusion, poor perfusion, blah, 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 blah. But how do we treat that? We treat it all the same. We give oxygen. If shock is poor tissue perfusion, this means the patient is not getting enough oxygen. We can correct that. We are EMTs. So either A, we're going to put them on a mask, or B, we're going to breathe for them. You have to decide on which one you're, what you're going to do. But the primary treatment in this is give them oxygen. So if you see the test question and your patient has pale, cool, clammy skin, patient's in shock, you need to give O2, so you need to look for the answer that has O2 in it. Airway obstructions. An airway obstruction is choking. Now we have total airway obstruction and total airway obstruction, okay? One thing that you need to know is that this is usually the unexplained sudden distress in kids. Kids are very good at, at getting foreign bodies in their throat. But regardless of that, let's talk about partial airway obstructions. If there's good, ex if there's good air exchange, that means you, the patient's able to talk like, hey, are you able to talk to us? But you see that they're struggling and they're talking. That means they're having air exchange. You're they're able to move air past the vocal cords in and out. Encourage that patient to cough. Now, if there's poor air exchange, pardon me, we're going to treat the same. We're going to treat this the same as a complete airway obstruction. And if the patient is conscious, abdominal thrust. So I'm going to jump on my soapbox right now, and I'm going to kill a dead or I'm going to kick a dead horse. I think that's the analogy. American Heart Association basic life support certification is very huge when it comes to answering the questions on the block to exam in the program that I teach in. But if you're not in the program I teach in, then we're going to discuss this. I need you to wrap your head around this. For the adult and child choking, conscious, we will perform abdominal thrusts until one of two things happen. Because with no airway means no life. No airway, no life. It does not matter what else we do. So our number one priority is to get that airway open. So one to, one to two things happen with conscious obstructed airway. Either A, we clear the obstruction, which is what we're going for, or B, if we do not clear it, the patient will eventually go unconscious. Unconscious obstructed airway is always treated, treated with CPR or chest compressions. Those two go, go back and forth. It all depends on what book you read, but regardless, it's chest compressions. Unconscious choking is chest compressions. So in the adult, we consider to do abdominal thrusts. That's the Heimlich. We don't really call it Heimlich anymore. We call it abdominal thrusts. And in the infant, five abdominal thrusts, five, or I'm sorry, five chest compressions, five back blows. Five chest compressions, five back blows. The minute the patient goes unconscious, I don't care if they're an adult, I don't care if they're an infant, I don't care if they're a child, you will start chest compressions. Now, I'm going to go back to talk about complete and unconscious uh, foreign body obstruction. So, what we're going to do, number one, check pulse, breathing. If pulse, and pre if pulse is present, they're probably not breathing. We're going to open the airway and attempt to ventilate. Now, if you're using the BVM and they have an obstructed airway, air is not going to go inside of the body and you're not, you're not going to see any type of chest rise. 
American Heart Association states that you're to reposition the head. In other words, put the head back into a neutral position, open up the airway a second time just in case we got it wrong the first time and attempt to ventilate. If air does not go in on that second attempt, then we're going to look inside the airway to see if we see a forward body obstruction. And if we do, we're going to go in and get it. And if we don't see it, then we're going to start doing chest compressions. You're going to do 30 chest compressions and you're going to look in the airway again. Then you're going to try to ventilate. And if unable to, we're going to look in the airway again and chest compressions. Rinse, repeat. Rinse, repeat. This is our treatment for foreign body airway obstruction. What is our general treatment for altered level of consciousness and airway management emergencies? So first, we're always going to maintain the airway. That is our primary thing we want to do. Oxygenation is next, so high flow O2 via a mask or BVM. Position, what position are we going to put our patients are in? Spinal mobilization or left lateral? Also could be semi-fowlers and fowlers depending on what's going on. If they're diabetic, consider glucose pace, psychological support, think AEIOU tips, and transport. Now, opening the airway. Our goal is to establish and maintain a patent open and secured airway. That is what we are trying to do. When we are going to do this, as with anything we do, we want to think body substance isolation equipment as well as the mechanism of injury of our patient. We do not want to become a second patient in our emergencies. Now, we have two maneuvers to open up an airway. The first is the typical head tilt chin lift. This is when we do not suspect trauma. And the second is a jaw thrust, which we utilize for spinal precautions. Now, don't forget though, we do have stomas. And stoma is that opening right where the trachea is at that allows a patient to breathe. These are sometimes put in place because someone has some type of damage to their upper airways. Now, just so you know, in case you have not heard about my website, I will be uploading videos or actually links to YouTube videos which describe how someone opens up an airway with the head tilt, chin lift, and jaw thrust. So those are coming soon. In case you're wondering, the website is www.thepublicsafetyguru.com. I challenge you to come on over, visit it, make some comments. We've got some blogs that are just starting, so hopefully we'll get some more information for you folks. Now, when we open up the airway, we may find ourselves in a peculiar situation. We may have to complete assessing the patient while maintaining the airway. So an example of that is, say we have the patient who has fallen, and we get there, and we decide that we're going to hold traction on the airway, or possibly use a jaw thrust to open up the airway. We have to still assess the patient. You're going to stay in that position, and you're going to do the best of your ability, but this is where we got to start thinking. We're going to be doing complex things. Previous lectures, we've been doing one thing at a time. Now, we're putting multiple things together. Now, some people have stomas, which is that opening inside of the, of the, or at the base of the throat. Do a Google search for stoma, and you'll see what pictures look like. Also, some people have trach tubes. They have, um, you should be thinking about the people who are um, in a wheelchair and are quadriplegics. They will, ha and, and they're on oxygen. So they've lost their diaphragm because it's the phrenic nerve, it's a spinal nerve. 
They're on um, a machine that keeps them breathing. They're, they, they, they know what's going on, but a machine helps them breathe. In essence, the machine is their, their diaphragm. This person will have a trach tube that's hooked up to oxygen that keeps them breathing. We may have to utilize that during medical emergency. Now, there really is no difference between an infant and an adult, when it, infant, child, and adult when it comes to airway management. The things that you just need to remember are children have smaller noses and mouth. Um, in the child, there's more space that's taken up by the tongue, so the tongue is proportionally bigger in the child than it is the adult. You may see that again on a test question. The child's trachea is narrower. The coracoid cartilage is less rigid and less developed in the child, and airway structures are more easily obstructed in the child because of their size. So these are the major differences, but we're still going to open up an airway with a head tilt chin lift or jaw thrust. Remember that first question and we talked about snorry respirations? Well, we could have corrected that through suctioning. So let's talk about the techniques of suctioning. First, the purpose of suctioning is to remove blood or other liquids and food from the airway. Aspiration, which means a foreign substance going into, lung, into the lungs can be lethal. When you hear gurgling, remember, gurgling, suction. So we have a few rules. Shallow, BVM. Wet, cool, moist skin. I know it was a bunch of things there together. Oxygen, and now gurgling, suction. Unfortunately, there are just different types of suction units out there. You have your mounted suction units, manual, battery powered, oxygen powered. The one takeaway from here, especially for National Registry, is this. You need to write this down, three by five card. Suction must maintain vacuum of 300 cm H2Os when clamped. 300 centimeters H2O when clamped. Now, methods of suctioning. We, suctular, we suction only in circular motions while withdrawing the catheter. So we put that cap catheter, it's a hard piece of plastic normally, it could be a soft, we'll talk, about that. we'll talk about that in just a sec, but normally it's a hard piece of plastic called a yonker. So you put this tube inside of the back of the throat and we circle and you could do counterclockwise, clockwise, it doesn't really matter, but a circular motion working your way outside of the patient's mouth. Going back to that yonker, and it's spelled Y-A-N-K-A-U-E-R. Google it, take a look what the picture looks like, but this is a standard one used for adult and children. Now we have another catheter, it's called a soft cat. It's non-rigid, some people refer to it as a French or whistle-tipped. We use this one for stomas and incidents where rigid catheters can cause complications. So you may find yourself using it. Sometimes, like I said, you'll put it at the, in the side of the stoma, suction away that phlegm and other stuff that's building up near it to clear that airway. Now, before we get into some numbers of how long we suction for, because we don't just to get a, we just don't get to suction for a, as long as we want, um, we may have to do multiple suctions on patients. But right before we suction, remember, we're moving air out. We're going to be taking air away from the patient. So we're going to want to pre-oxygenate the patient and post-oxygenate the patient. What that means is provide oxygen before and after suctioning. This is something you should consider and think about.
when we do multiple suctions in between suctions, who Scooby or Shaggy, that's a clue. We want to rinse the catheter. Rinse with sterile water, then repeat. Suction, oxygen, rinse, suction. Okay, don't forget about the rinse. We don't want to stick a dirty yonker or catheter back into the patient's mouth or stoma. Now with children, I should take that back, with infants, we'll use a bulb syringe. Once again, Google bulb syringe and you'll take a look at that. But we do it the same way. We'll put the tip of the bulb syringe in the back of the baby's mouth and then we will release it and that little bulb syringe will suck in saliva and whatever else is in the back of the baby's throat causing that gurgling respirations. Okay, three by five car time. Max suction times. I should figure out how I could do like some type of voice with that, huh? Three by five car max suction time. Okay, that was the best I can do. So, adult, we suction between 10 to 15 seconds. Children, 10 seconds. Infants, five. Those are your times. Live them, learn them, remember them. We're now going to talk about EMT airway adjuncts. And the reason why I say EMT is these are the ones that are available to EMTs and you'll find these on your ambulances and in your airway kits. Before we break them down, remember, airway adjuncts assist with manual techniques and should be used in conjunction together. Adjuncts are not used alone. So we're not gonna use these alone. We're gonna use them with other, our techniques for maintaining the airway. As with everything we do, we have some rules. So the rules for airway adjuncts. Open airway manually first. No gag reflex for oral airway. They cannot have a gag reflex. They also, we don't want to suspect any type of skull fracture, especially for a nasal airway. And remember, we have to maintain a manual airway method even when the airway is already in place. So if you drop an OP or an NP, you're gonna still manually keep the airway open. Let's summarize that one more time. Rules for airway adjuncts. Open airway manually first. Ensure there's no gag reflex, especially for OPA. No possible skull fracture for NPA. Maintain manual airway method even when airway is in place. Do not force tongue into pharynx. Have suction available. Remove adjunct if patient gags or regains consciousness and maintain infectious control. So now let's talk airways. The first airway is called the oropharyngeal airway or OPA. So if you have a medic that says, grab me an OPA, this is what he wants. Now, once again, you need to look this up. You probably have already seen one in class or in your books, but if you haven't, look one up via Google or whatever search engine you use and look at what I'm talking about. They come in various different sizes because we have various different size people. It is spelled O-R-O-P-H-A-R-Y-N-G-E-A-L. Now, there are three different ways that you can insert an OP airway. So I would challenge you to find a YouTube video and look those up or refer to the instructions given in your particular class. But just so you can look them up, we have 180 degree technique, 90 degree technique, and straight in technique. I prefer the 180 as you put the airway in, you start upside down, halfway twist as you get in, and then the further second twist as you finally get that airway totally in. So that's my way of, that I prefer. 
Now, the next airway is known as the nasal pharyngeal airway. N-A-S-O-P-H-A-R-Y-N-G-E-A-L. And this is the one that goes through the nostrils. Now, the key takeaway on this one are two things. Number one, we don't use it if we suspect some type of skull fracture, as the NP can go directly back to the brain. And two, we lube up the NP with a medically approved lubricant before we insert it. may see that again. I'm not sure, but shaggy, that's a clue. You're probably getting sick of that. Actually, I should get the real Scooby-Doo voice and insert that into that and make these a little bit more livelier, huh? All right, ladies and gentlemen. We've come up on our 40-minute mark. It's been 20 minutes since our last break, so why don't you go ahead and take a 20-minute break and come on back, and we're going to talk about the preferred method as far as BVM. So according to the American Heart Association, the preferred order for PPV is two-person. Two-person is the preferred method, but realistically, it's going to probably be one person in back of the ambulance. But in the order of operations of how we're going to do things, and this is American Heart Association, first one is two-person BVM, followed by FRO-PVD. We'll talk about that in just a sec. And then one-person BVM. Now, here's some numbers that I don't know if you're going to have to memorize, but at a very minimum, you should put them on a 3x5 card and at least kind of know about them. So these are considered bag mask volume volumes and dose. So this is per squeeze on the bag BVM, bag, bag mask valve. Infant, 150 to 240 milliliters. Infant, 150 to 240. Pediatric, 500 to 700. Adult, 1200 to 1600. And these are all milliliters, ML. Now, if you're doing a BVM without supplemental oxygen, which I don't know why you would be doing that, but if you were, you need to give 700 to 1,000 mLs per ventilation, or here's the number that you need to memorize, 10 mLs per kilogram. 10 10 mLs per kilogram. If you're administering with supplemental oxygen, which is what we do, give 4 to 106 milliliters per ventilation, or six to seven milliliters per kilogram. National registry numbers you need to know are device must have a 15 slash 22 millimeter fitting for the face mask. The device must have a 15 dash 22 millimeter fitting for the face mask and the device must accept 30 liters of oxygen per minute. 30 liters slash a minute. We can use the bag, the, uh, the BVM, the bag valve, bag valve mask. Say that fast three times, right? We can use BVM u- utilizing the head tilt chin lift, and we can also use it for the jaw thrust when we suspect spinal, when we have to suspect spinal precautions or do spinal precautions. Once again, refer to what's taught in your classroom for that skill. When we use BVM, we are looking for good chest rise to know we are ventilating. Oh, I do apologize. I am so done with these national registry numbers to know. So this is positive pressure ventilation. Once again, remember those numbers. We have a second slide on it, so it must be important. Without O2, it's 10 milliliters per kilogram. With O2, it's 6 to 7 milliliters per kilogram. Okay? 3 by 5 card, memorize it, get ready for your national registry. Now, remember that FRO device I was telling you about? 
We had those when I first started in the field many, many moons ago. Then they took them out of the ambulances. I've spoken to a couple of ops managers and they're not in their ambulances as well. I don't know if this is a state of California thing, if this is a trend going across the nation, but you may be uh, in another state listening to this podcast. And if you are, thank you very much for supporting it. That's exciting if that's true. PPV, or I'm sorry, a FRO, is, is a positive pressure ventilation. This is hooked up to oxygen. There's a device that you utilize your fingers or your thumb and you push down on it, which pushes air into the patient's lungs. So a BVM or manually, a FRO device is designed that you're doing it with the device oxygen. So once again, I was always told we could blow out someone's lungs. I never heard of it ever happening, but you know, there's always wives' tales in EMS. So that's that device. Now with the FRO device, there are some contraindications. We don't use them on children, not utilized for chest trauma, no COPD patients, and we don't use them for ET tubes. Now, obviously, there has to be national registry numbers with the FRO device as well. Why would there not be, right? So, must provide peak oxygen at up to 40, li- 40 liters per minute. Let me repeat that. Must provide peak of 100% oxygen at up to 40 liters per minute. Know the contraindications, which are children, spinal or chest trauma, and COPD. Must have a 60 centimeter pressure release valve. Must have a 60 centimeter pressure release valve. Now, at least in California, intubation is not a EMT skill, it's a paramedic skill. With that, as a paramedic, I can tell you this. Um, There are those difficult times when a paramedic might have trouble visualizing the vocal cords. So you're going to hear a medic tell you, give me some cryp pressure. This is referred to as the Selix maneuver. This is when you place your thumb and forefinger over the cryptoid membrane and you apply posterior pressure to block esophagus. So... Essentially, what you're doing, if you guys haven't figured it out, I love so and essentially. Those two words are like my kryptonite. When it says you're going to apply posterior pressure, well, what's posterior? That's back. So you're going to slightly, gently push down on that cryp membrane, allowing, you're going to close the esophagus, but you're also going to show me the vocal cords. This happens every now and then on difficult tubes. Um, I've only used it a few times but it's just something that you may have to do in the field. Now, paramedics have all sorts of cool little devices that you're gonna help us use. One of those are CO2 detectors. CO2 detectors change color on end tidal volume, which tells us what's going on in the ET, in the intubation process. Depending on where you work, if you work for IFT car, which is interfacility transports, or a 911 car, and I do realize some of you, if you're out of state and you're listening to this and you're like, what are you talking about? Well, in California, our EMS system is a little antiquated. The fire department owns EMS. So as an EMT, you find yourself either working for IFT car, which is transporting one patient to another hospital from one facility to another, or a 911 car where you are the ambulance for the paramedics. That's just the way it is. Maybe we'll talk about that later on. Regardless of that, where you're, where you're working, you will learn how to use the devices in that particular region or county. 
What if we have a patient that has a stoma or a tracheotomy tube? How do we ventilate through that? Well, the ones that have a tracheotomy tube, that fitting is a universal fitting. So that tube that's connected to the stoma, we will be able to put our BVM on it and we'll be able to breathe as if, the per as if that was a normal airway. So that's best case scenario. Sometimes though, a patient will have difficulty breathing because that stoma um, is unable to be ventilated because it's all crusted with some mucus and phlegm. So we're gonna use, utilize a French or soft catheter to suction that airway out. And we suction like we talked before, same numbers apply. We're gonna pre-ventilate and post-ventilate. If you do find air is escaping through the nose and the mouth, um, it could be because um, it's just enough. Uh, there hasn't been total damage done to those upper airways. So what we want to do is we want to close those airways off by closing the mouth and pinching the nostrils. That is what you do when you have air escaping when utilizing a stoma or tracheotomy. Now, when do our ventilations become inadequate? Well, first, we don't have good rise and fall or we ventilate too slow or too fast. The way we could figure it out is if the heart rate does not return or remain normal when we're doing artificial ventilations. So we should be checking the pulse from time to time to see how we're doing. You may find yourself in a call where your patient, or excuse me, the paramedic tells you we're going to go ahead and give passive oxygen. Passive oxygen should only be used in patients that have adequate respiratory rate and adequate respiratory volume. I kind of refer to the patient that, if I'm going to paint the picture for you, that is postictal. So the patient just had a seizure, and remember, the entire time that someone is seizing, they are not breathing. So the seizure's over, now they're breathing normally, but their brain is still hypoxic. Well, we can go ahead and give them some blow-by or passive oxygen because the respiratory rate is fine and they have great respiratory volume. Unfortunately, in California or the region where you work at within California, we normally don't arm our ambulance EMTs with a pulse ox. Why? I don't know. That's a question for debate. But let's talk about the conditions requiring oxygen-based or pulse oximetry. Chest pain without shortness of breath. Stroke without shortness of breath. Now remember, the magic number is 94%. If the pulse ox is at 94 95 94% or above, no supplemental oxygen is needed. Just because this is a possible test question, remember this, and this one just came out of the blue. Portable oxygen cylinders are always identified by being green or aluminum colored cylinders. So just remember green is O2. Now, in my opinion, we really don't use nasal cannulas all that much. But here are some things you need to know about the nasal cannula. On 100% oxygen, the patient will get 24 to 44% oxygen when it's hooked up to your tank. So regardless that 100% is going in, just by design alone, the patient only gets 22 to 44% oxygen. We will give the patient anywhere between 2 to 6 liters As far as non-rebreather mask, if we hook a patient up to a non-rebreather mask and we hook it up to our oxygen tank, which has 100% oxygen, the patient will only get 90%. That's a magic number that you need to remember, 90%. 
We will normally put the liters per minute anywhere between 10 to 15. I'm a 12 to 15 kind of person. I always caution and I go 15, but that's just me. You're not gonna be wrong either way, but make sure it is above 10 liters per minute. Oxygen is dry and it dries out the nostrils and mucous membranes. So some ambulance companies, especially those that do interfacility transports, will have humidified air. It's a device that's hooked up to the house O2, has saline inside of it, and you will hook up your tubing to that, and it moistens the oxygen that's going to the patient. So this just all depends on, once again, who you work for, where you work at, and what your assignment is. As we're coming to an end of our lecture, here are some things I want you to remember. Priority for airway and oxygenation. Oxygenation. Without a patent airway and adequate oxygenation, nothing else matters. The patient will die regardless of other conditions. So let's talk some special conditions. Oxygenation of COPD patients. Okay, so since I sat in the seat in 1986 where you guys are at, I was told that if you give someone who has COPD oxygen, you can knock out their respiratory drive as they're oxygen breathers. I have never heard of it actually happening, but I'm sure somewhere in middle America, no offense, middle America, but it had to have happened. Regardless of that, we never withhold oxygen. If the patient is displaying signs of inadequate breathing, give high amounts of oxygen regardless of history of low flow use. Continuously monitor the level of consciousness and respiratory status. We cannot be machines. So with that, we don't trust our machines to tell us how to treat our patients. You need to talk to your patients. You need to touch your patients. You need to assess your patients. If you treat your patients, if we just treat the machines, they could be wrong. They could be faulty. They could be broken. So this is why we throw this information out at you because we just don't want you being a, I don't give oxygen because I have COPD. No, we never withhold that. We do have people that have dentures. So I want you to close your eyes right now and describe to me what dentures are. The majority of you in class always tell me a full set of teeth. Yes, that are dentures, but commonly people can have two to three teeth only. Now, normally we will always leave dentures in place because they give us structure to put the BVM or the oxygen mask on. It gives us that facial structure that we need. But if they become loose, remove them, get them out of the airway, okay? There's the, the slide will normally say, your instructors will normally say, if a partial plate becomes loose, leave it in place unless it comes a problem. Yeah, you know what? Let's just forget about that. Let's just get it out of the way now, okay? Let's not fuss with it. Put it off to the side. Make sure you don't lose it because dentures are very expensive. For testing purposes in my class, you better remove those dentures when you see that question. So what is the magic percentage we're looking at on pulse ox? If you said 94, you're absolutely right. A pulse oximeter is measuring the saturated hemoglobin and putting that in a percentage form for us. That is referred to as SpO2. SpO2. A normal SpO2 is 97 to 99% on room air. Any reading that is less than 94% is potential hypoxia. Remember, a pulse ox is considered a vital sign. 
Now, we just don't pop a pulse ox on someone's finger and then that immediate reading is our number. No. We should wait for at least two minutes to get a true reading or that two minutes will really tell us if there is a problem. Magic number, ladies and gentlemen, is what? Two minutes! Yay! All right, we're going to end our lecture with this. Oxygen and using a pulse ox. Shock or hypothermic, use high flow oxygen. Non-rebreather mask or PPV slash BVM. Number two, goal for most patients is 94% and above. Number three, for COPD patients, the goal is 88 to 92%. They got lung damage, okay? Sucks, but that's what we're going to go for. Number four, with no pulse oximetry, mild to moderate distress, give oxygen at two to six liters minute via nasal cannula. Severe distress, give 10 to 15 liters per minute via non-rebreather mask. That is it. We have now concluded the airway ventilation oxygen lecture. This was a big lecture. We're almost coming up on an hour, ladies and gentlemen. So refer to it. This is what's going to be on block two if you're in my exam. You're able to leave comments. It's a new feature. Also, come visit me at www.thepublicguru.com and go to one of the blogs if you have a question. I'm trying to get all this stuff situated. I'm trying to make it easier for you to get a hold of me. This is just all stuff that's um, you know out there and getting better. Good luck to you, and I look forward to taping or recording. Taping is my generation. Recording your next podcast. Have a good night. Have a good weekend, and I will talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Uh-huh.